We have entered the era of global boiling, according to the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. So how are we going to adapt? And what about the world's most vulnerable people who are feeling the sharp end of climate change already? Joining the Eco Business podcast to discuss this hot topic is Professor Winston Chow, who was recently elected to run a working group for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. Part of Prof Chow's job is to lead a team of scientists to produce an assessment report on how the world can adapt to climate change as record temperatures continue to be broken and we creep ever closer to the climate critical point of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Chow, who is Associate Professor of Urban Climate at the College of Integrative Studies at Singapore Management University, believes that for too long, climate adaptation research has been focused on developed countries, and it's time to examine how vulnerable people in Asia and elsewhere can withstand ever more extreme climate effects. Welcome to the podcast, Winston Chow. Good to be on the show, and uh, always welcome to talk with Eco Business. You guys do great work. Uh covering uh, important climate aspects for Singapore and the region. So I'm very happy to be on. That's wonderful to hear. Thanks so much. So let's crack on with the first question that I'd like to ask you, Winston. So you're recently appointed co-chair of the IPCC Working Group 2, which focuses on climate impact and adaptation, right? Can you tell us briefly what exactly that means? Okay, Robin, I'll try and unpack that. So uh, last week I was... Um, uh, elected by the um, IPCC, by the member parties and the states that comprise the parties of the IPCC to the role of co-chair working group two, which focuses on assessing climate impacts, uh, climate vulnerability and adaptation to climate change. There are two co-chairs. One is from a developed country. One is from a developing country, uh, according to the UNFCCC classifications. So my, uh, shall we say, partner in crime is Professor Bart van den Hoek from Deltares in the Netherlands. And the other co-chair is myself from Singapore Management University here in Singapore. What we're supposed to do is uh, deliver an assessment report, um, the seventh assessment report for this working group uh, over the next five to seven years, um, you know, ideally sooner rather than later. Uh, we have a team of fantastic vice chairs from uh, uh, around the world, uh, experts on different aspects on climate adaptation, vulnerability and impacts, uh, together with the eight of them. And you can find out more details on the IPCC website. Uh, we are tasked to uh, select a a team, an A team, so to speak, of climate experts in this field uh, that represents, you know, the adaptation and vulnerability aspects uh, for different regions around the world, uh, for different economic and natural sectors, and they are tasked to do the job I previously did in the sixth assessment report is to author that section, uh, give a comprehensive assessment on the state of uh, climate change on adaptation, vulnerability and impacts. Uh, and we then write the report, we bring the report, uh, a summary of the report is brought to policymakers uh, from the IPCC, from the 195 uh, UN member states, um, and then it's approved, hopefully. The other things that uh, I do as a co-chair is uh, we also have a special report on uh, cities and climate change. So if you know my background, I uh, specialize in how cities affect climate and how climate change affects cities. Uh, we will have a cross-working group sort of uh, 
special report on that, that governments are keen on finding out more about climate, urban climate science, urban climate impacts, adaptation, vulnerability, and how cities can play a important role in mitigating climate change and to enhance climate resilient development, uh, sustainable development uh, within you know, these areas of great importance. Then the third thing I, I, uh, I, I campaigned on, so to speak, or I want to do is to be more, is to be an effective communicator, an effective outreach person. Um, the role of co-chair has some responsibilities in order to make sure as many people around the world, uh, in, in my region firstly and elsewhere, uh, know about the importance of uh, climate adaptation and how what what works, what doesn't work so well, uh, how it can be financed, how it can be enabled, and what are the benefits of uh, looking into, you know, enabling good adaptation versus uh, the opposite, which is what we call maladaptation from occurring. Fascinating. So you mentioned communications there. Now we'll get onto that a bit later on in this chat. What also struck me as interesting is that you're writing an assessment report over a period of five to seven years, you said, as climate impacts are unfolding as we speak, right? We're going through a period of unprecedented heat waves, for example. Um, now I want to ask about climate adaptation and vulnerability, which in the grand scheme of things has been relatively overlooked. Um, subject, particularly at the last until the last COP twenty seven um, event. While you know climate mitigation, let's be honest, has taken most of the limelight. So, talk us through what climate adaptation means, Winston, and the tasks ahead for for climate vulnerable countries in Asia, particularly. Okay, adaptation uh, in its basic essential point is just protecting. Uh, something of value from the adverse consequences of climate change. So it, it's, it's the um, twin brother or twin sibling of mitigation. Mitigation tackles the root causes of climate change. All those um, uh, emissions from greenhouse gases, from human activity, or from deforestation of terrestrial and marine um, forests and other ecosystems that adds carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The issue is that, um, Robin, as you pointed out, the problems of uh, extreme climate events, uh, weather events linked to climate change, um, heat waves, the recent tropical cyclones that affected Okinawa and Beijing uh, over the past few days, uh, they are not going to get any less intense. They are not going to get any less frequent. Uh, lots of damage and loss or losses and damages, something I think we'll be talking about later, will arise. And you need to protect um, aspects of society. You need to protect cities. You need to protect ecosystems from the uh, worst impacts that will happen. So uh, this protective element, um, I would mildly disagree with you, Robin. I think it's been on the agenda for a lot of previous COPs and a lot of previous um, bilateral discussions with governments. Uh, but you're right. It doesn't have that same sort of um, um, appeal. Um, some will say I would be cheeky and say sexy, you know, sex appeal in a sense, compared to the mitigation aspects there. Uh, but nonetheless, it is important because as you know, as we know, these impacts are happening now and it makes much more prudent uh, financial sense uh, and it makes more prudent political sense to have action to protect you know your your stakeholders uh if you're or if you're cynical you want to protect your voter base uh individual governments will have to make sure that these are accounted for as more floods and more droughts occur over the next few years 
so that that has to happen. And I guess um, the, the things that we are doing, the research that we are assessing, which uh, unfortunately is like a live look or a live peak in these days, um, there's going to be a wealth of, um, of, of, of important adaptation-related research looking into impact reduction, looking into risk reduction that we have to get a handle of. We have to distill uh, in very, shall we say, palatable policy-relevant language uh, to government make, uh, to government officials, to policymakers. And increasingly, we have to find a way to make sure that the reports are also accessible to uh, the business community, which realize that, um, you know, the you before you even want to consider the importance of uh, transition risks, uh, you need to figure out what's the level of your physical risk that you're facing right now in the age of climate extremes. Yeah, no, the interesting thing about um, companies there, you mentioned businesses, which I'll ask you about later on. But first of all, I want to, want to ask you about the recent comment by the United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, who said that we've entered an era of global boiling. I'm going to do the academic thing and answer a question with a question. Who are the we that we're referring to? So when we talk about global boiling and uh, you know, uh, UN SecGen uh, has a good point in that sense. Uh, we're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius above uh, the, uh, the you know, pre-industrial warming and we have to keep to 1.5 per Paris. And the issue is that for many people, Many societies in the majority developing world, your global south, at 1.1 is already an issue of life and death. It's already an issue of uh, vast amounts of livelihoods being affected, uh, crops failing chronically. It's no longer an acute issue. Uh, you're unable to, uh, your traditional fishing grounds are no longer plentiful because the oceans are too warm or it's too acidic and and uh, people in you know who make a living from the sea, apart from living on the land, they, they, will, they really face these sort of stark choices uh, that that would necessitate your life to be changed. So that's 1.1. If it's 1.5, then for people in these regions uh, who are extremely vulnerable, who don't have those resources to adapt as well as they can, who don't have the capacity to reduce the climate risks that are in the pipeline, then that global boiling element is extremely valid. And uh, if, you, if you have that sort of context, um, looking at not just well-off societies in more developing, more sorry, more developed or global north societies, uh, if you change your viewpoint accordingly, then you realize that what you what what uh, um, Mr. Guterres said uh, is quite valid, and it's to be kept in mind, especially with the discussions that will take place in Dubai this coming December for COP twenty eight. Indeed, I mean, I'll tell you what scares me most about climate change is the concept of positive feedback loops. Now, you're the scientist, correct me if I, if I get this wrong, but it's when basically when one climatic event leads to a sort of domino effect of others. Um, I want to ask you in the context of adaptation and vulnerability, Winston, just how well prepared is this region for positive feedback loops unfolding? Um, the scientific term that we assess is called cascading risks. So it's a chronic sort of, you know, it's like a domino where one event leads to another and it propagates on and it doesn't end at a set point. The impacts are felt long down the, the, the chain and uh, dealing with that is a problem. Um, so your question is, how is this region faring? Uh, I would say not that good <laughs> uh, for a variety of metrics. 
that have to be quantified. Uh, but uh, for instance, if you have, let's say, a flood event that occurs in a coastal port where a lot of uh, goods and services are traded, it knocks out the port facilities for a couple of weeks. Uh, the prices of your uh, goods um, that are supposed to be shipped out from that port therefore increase because of the you know the the. Uh, lack of available transport options. Uh, consumers elsewhere outside of that port will then have to bear the brunt of that. But within the port itself, those sort of, let's say, um, maritime workers or people employed by the industries within that sort of area, um, if these events are one-off, maybe they can bounce back and recover from it. But the challenge, as, as we all know, is that um, let's say those flood events, they become more frequent and they become more severe. If that happens for to that region and you have repeated floods that hit that port over and over again odds are that these uh, communities will decide to up sticks and leave and if you up sticks and leave the final cascading impact that happens is that uh, the tax base the revenue base that you get your taxes that support the community dwindles and policymakers will will get hit by that. So that's the classic example of a cascading climate risk made real. Uh, these are, I mean, these are all too commonly reported and we assess that in the sixth assessment report. Um, I would say that not many regions are adequately prepared for this. Not many regions actually are aware of this chain of uh, cascade, the, this chain of dominoes, as you, as you pointed out, Robin, uh, being a particular threat. They are only focused on the immediate short-term or the immediate direct impacts of climate change. And the concern from uh, my colleagues, you know, my fellow climate scientists who, who do these sort of assessments is that, hey, this is something that will add on to your physical risk and also adds on to the, 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 the challenge of transitioning away uh, to, a, to a more green, uh, a green outlook, a green economy, a green government uh, that you have to really account for. And maybe that's the motivation to get that change done. Right. Now, you've said um, before that, that governments like to hear about adaptation success stories, I think, in a recent interview. Um, although we hear in Asia often about, you know, sinking cities, disappearing islands, climate migration, for example. Yep. Um, where are Asia's climate adaptation success stories, Winston, um, uh, that we can learn from? <laughs> um, there are a few that we we put into our case studies section in, in the chapter for IPCC six assessment, six assessment report. Um, uh, I'm not going to mention Singapore uh, because I'm biased in that way, but uh, two come to mind. One is in Semarang in Indonesia, uh, and the other one is in Xi'an in China. So two different examples of um, what I would say good stories. Um, you know, I wouldn't say success stories. I'll say that these are stories of positive change. Uh, in Semarang, um, the key focus is on uh, reducing issues of sea level rise, reducing issues of flooding because of that by the coast. Um, the management perspective is a success story from the management perspective. Uh, we focuses we focus on how the inclusive element was there. It wasn't just a top-down decision to adapt by uh, maintaining coastal vegetation, focusing on nature-based solutions or that. The, the success or the positive outcome resulted because of the inclusivity of different stakeholders into uh, decision-making 
for applying nature-based solutions, as well as for management of those um, um, nature-based solutions that were applied. You had local stakeholders who knew the topography, who knew the context very well. You had local knowledge from uh, indigenous groups, from people who have lived in, in Semarang and the coastal region for long enough uh, that were brought into the discussion and led the discussion so that these outcomes uh, were, in all sense of the word, sustainable, not just in the environmental sense, but also in the social sense, because these stakeholders uh, had, you know, they, they valued their, um, the, the, entire the entire community's inputs were valued and they were properly incorporated and they were properly included into the management structure. So that's one. Uh, the other one I want to focus in Sisian uh, was the use of water-sensitive urban design uh, along the, the rivers that used to flood quite often uh, that um, caused a lot of damage to infrastructure uh, around those the, the river region. Um, so imagine something like Bishan Amokyo Park in Singapore being <laughs> applied at scale in that region. And um, flooding was reduced, but um, I mean, that's not the, to me, that's not the interesting point. I mean, the science behind water-sensitive urban design is rock solid. What was interesting to me was how that um, that 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 the the this applied research was funded, and it was funded through a, a public private partnership. So both businesses and the municipal governments and the national government realize they can't do it alone. And adaptation that has a sort of um. I wouldn't say equal, maybe a fair contribution from both parties. They realize that it's to our mutual interest that the protection from these nature-based solutions or these flood protection measures um, are properly financed. Uh, it will pay off in spades in the long run. So they're great case studies, you know, stories of resilience. And, and that leads on to my next, next question about communications. How can we get better at telling the climate story, which is, I think, a, a passion point of yours as well? Um, you know, in, in Eco Businesses Newsroom, we, we wrestle with the idea of, you know, do we tell another story about the gloom of, of climate change or do we focus more on solutions? Now, I want to ask you, Winston, how do we get better at telling the climate story? Uh, that's a very good question, Robin. Um, you need good storytellers who know the basics of science. You need storytellers that can connect with different people, different peoples, different cultures, different communities, different organizations. Um, in the IPCC, uh, we in the last assessment cycle, we sort of like highlighted this uh, concept of climate resilient development where you combine adaptation with climate mitigation, with uh, biodiversity conservation, because we know ecology is critical, uh, maintaining ecology is critical for climate change. And the last thing is to focus on all 17 sustainable development goals in decision-making and in other aspects, including communication. Uh, telling a good story to the right people gets everybody on the same page is one of the things that is essential for climate resilient development. If people are motivated enough to understand that uh, collective action um, on the uh, collective action that fulfills that goal in uh, in terms of climate adaptation or mitigation or biodiversity conservation uh, is going it will make things easier 
um, people will get motivated for different reasons. Uh, uh, I'm motivated by the sense that I want my kids and my and their kids and their friends to have a livable world in the future. Uh, finance people might be motivated by, uh, if, if not the profit motive, they are motivated by reducing your losses, your operational and your capital expenditures as much as possible by financing measures that protect your you know your, your your company's assets as best as possible if you can weave a thread as a storyteller or as a person who wants to convince people about the importance of climate adaptation mitigation climate resilient development or what have you uh, you need to find the right thread that links all these things together and convey it in a genuine or or uh, not a convincing way a genuine way to make sure people understand what is at stake and therefore lead them to be motivated to act. That's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, finding a thread that links these things together. And I guess also what matters to the individual is a great place to start. Now, you mentioned companies there, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. I'm just curious as to, Winston, do you ever get approached by business people who want to understand, for example, the science of decarbonization? They've got net zero targets. Um, I'm interested by what sort of questions businesses ask you as a scientist and and what you tell them? It depends on the audience. So yes, uh, lots of companies from many different sectors have asked, um, even before I was elected co-chair, the perspective that I can give, um, the broad perspective that I give, and I hope the informed perspective that I, I, I previously gave as an IPCC author was useful to them. Um, in some cases, some companies are just starting out on their own uh, net zero journey. Uh, they want to know the basics of what climate science is. They want to know why would reducing my scope one, two, let alone scope three emissions matter in the big scheme of things. Uh, is it really true that greenhouse gas cause climate change. So it ranges from the, the, the sort of basic climate science 101 things to more advanced, um, uh, you know, how does, how would scope three emissions be reduced uh, if, you know, it's dependent on other people's companies and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so the, to me, as someone who, um, as an academic, I'm usually comfortable talking with my peers and writing <laughs> boring papers that only like 10 people read. Uh, it's a challenge to actually reframe the sort of complex um complex of uh, information that we write on, the data that I have to keep myself updated on every day, uh, into something that appeals to the um, direct company's interests. Uh, So a company that is involved in reinsurance, for instance, uh, they will be very fascinated to hear how Climate science, uh, climate scientists um, develop models that gives them a good idea about uh, about uh, what's what the changing probabilities would be for severe storms or you know severe uh, or tropical cyclones in the region. Uh, I in, in the legal pro- uh, progress, uh, profession as well, uh, there's an increasing number of um, um, judges and lawyers who belatedly realize, hey. Um, Climate justice is important because uh, eventually there'll be cases of um, <laughs> losses and damages coming into play. There'll be cases where uh, 
companies that are viewed to be responsible for environmental damage through either greenhouse gas emissions or from uh, removal of forest cover for mining instances, uh, for example. Uh, these judges have to be informed um, or these lawyers have to be informed about uh, the basics of climate science and whether or not the sort of actions, direct actions taken by companies, um, they are worthy of, I mean, they are worthy of being, you know, penalized in that sense. So the whole range of, I mean, from a whole range of economic sectors, from a whole range of businesses, the interest is increasing a lot. That's a good thing for um, for scientists, I mean, for, for the IPCC and other agencies who have been shouting for the past 30 plus years about climate change. Better late than never, you could argue. Uh, but I can't do it alone. My co-chair Bart can't do it alone. My vice chairs and my my uh, author colleagues can't do it alone. It's up to you know news agencies like Eco Business and others who uh, do responsible reporting on environment, uh, responsible reporting on climate change and driving climate action that can greatly assist in this sort of communication to businesses or other key sectors that have an important part to play in uh, acting on climate in the years to come. I've got to ask you, Winston, before one last question about the future, I've got to ask you about how you deal with climate deniers. Uh, Robin, I think you have more experience than I have on this. But in all honesty, um, I did my PhD in Phoenix, Arizona, where let's just say that I met my fair share of um, climate contrarians, so to speak. Uh, first things first, I don't like engaging with these people uh, on social media because um, it's difficult to convince them on a faceless person uh, without seeing them eye to eye. People behave differently in real life than they do online. Second is that uh, if I do meet, and I have met people face to face that have said uh, greenhouse gases, uh, they are no, no, they don't cause climate change. It's all natural, or it's too expensive to do anything. You know, why, why should I bother? Or things like that. Um, you, you would, you have to remind yourself, or I, I remind myself that they are a fellow Homo sapiens sapiens. They're fellow human, you know, person. They have their own interests. They have their own. Um, you know, um, ideals, you know, they, they what uh, the, the challenge is trying to find out what makes them tick. The challenge is trying to find out what really values to them. And the scary thing about climate change is that it's so all-encompassing and, and pervasive that it will affect all sorts of um, all sorts of uh, aspects of life. I've um, I wouldn't say I've convinced climate contrarians or uh, quote unquote deniers to change their minds, but I've made them pause and reflect on their own prior assumptions of whether or not climate change is uh, natural versus human, you know, versus human cause. Uh, well, or, or sometimes it's like um, one particular example that comes to mind is someone who enjoys their, their, their bottle of, of, of champagne. Uh, and I said that, you know, um, climate change is going to cause uh, champagne not to be champagne. It'll be sparkling wine again because that region in France is going to be too warm for uh, the varietals, the great varietals to be called champagne. And it's going to decrease the quality of that. And that gave them a bit of pause. And then they thought, okay, um, you know, maybe climate change is serious enough that it will affect my enjoyment of my beverage of choice. Um, that would you know, and then and, and then the 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 guy said, okay, I'll, I'll reconsider this. I'll think about this a bit more. That's all I ask for when I meet up with um uh people who don't necessarily believe in uh what the IPCC says or people who give alternative proposals as to what causes climate change. Uh, 
the, cha the, cha the challenge is meeting them in person and seeing whether they are willing to have a discussion in good faith. And if they do, odds are if you find out common interests that they have. So as you can imagine, I also enjoy my, my glass of Prosecco or my glass of uh, sparkling wine as well. Uh, telling them that these things will cause a change in your own personal um, personal aspects of life might actually give them pause to reflect and pause to actually reconsider their own previous mistaken assumptions about climate change. How hopeful are you that we're going to meet the 2050 net zero um, target to keep a lid on 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels or even the 2030 interim targets that have been set? How hopeful are you? <laughs> well, hope lies on a spectrum. It's not a binary. That's one. Um, if you ask me this question after 2009 when uh, Copenhagen, the, the Copenhagen cop just went belly up, I would have said we're screwed. Uh, but after 2015, after Paris, after a very slow start, better late than ever, obviously, I see two important signs. One is the business community. So far, you know, even the, the dirtier sectors, they can't ignore climate change. And there are some more progressive sectors that realize this is something that needs to be done urgently. And more importantly, there's actually money to be made from this. So the profit motive actually uh, drives a lot of these companies and and and. Um, financing agencies to to change their act. Uh, so outside of the governmental process. And two is that uh, there is a high level alignment in, in values for some large countries that uh, yes, there are there are problems, you know, that there's that there are problems with uh, other sorts of aspects of geopolitics, but in, in some cases, we see eye, these countries see eye to eye on what needs to be done. Um, of course, for instance, the best example is uh, China and the US. They disagree recently with a lot of different things. But in terms of climate change and in terms of climate action at, at a global scale, and in terms of leadership um, that's required to drive the necessary net zero changes to happen, um, they see eye to eye on that. That's quite impressive. I think that's the only thing that you see eye to eye on these days. Uh, so those are signs and the more positive signs that happen um, and they are coming um, you know, uh, more than you think. Uh, I am quietly hopeful. I'm quietly optimistic, much more so than in 2010 to between 2010 to 2015 uh, of much needed action taking place that, um, that, will, that will hopefully keep us as close as possible to net zero by the middle of this century, uh, if not sooner. Winston Chow, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.